0: I realized as I was driving in, I was like, oh, I'm wearing a t-shirt that has text on it and you're gonna spend the whole sermon trying to figure out what it says. So I'm just gonna tell you, it says the word tilted. I got this from my brother-in-law who's a gamer and it's, a, it's not a gaming term exclusively, but when like you're playing a multiplayer game and someone like beats you and then you, they beat you again, they beat you again, you get kind of tilted and you start making poor decisions. So that's what that means. So you don't have to worry about that the rest of the sermon because you now know what it means. <laughs> it's, so this is really cool. So I preached last in June. It was the middle of June. And at the end of that, this was my identity sermon where I took these and I knocked them down in a really dramatic fashion. It was, it was my best sermon I've done. It was really great. Um, and after that sermon was done, I knew that I was preaching today. And so I was like, all right, God, well, what, what do you want to say in September? It's July. We have the summer. It's great. And he gave me a, a, what he wanted to say today. And when, when he did, I was like... Okay, that doesn't really fit where we're at. Like we're, I just talked about identity, and we're doing this like in Christ and the gifts of the Spirit, and we've been empowered for like the last millennium. And so I, like, I didn't know how it fit. And then Kurt came back from uh, taking care of his parents, and he was like, "Oh, I heard from the Lord, and I feel like where we're at His reset." And I went, "That's very interesting. I think I sort of have a sense of what my sermon should be. The problem is... I have a lot of ground to cover, and I don't know how I'm going to cover it all in one sermon. And then last week, Kurt preached Romans 1, and I was going to preach Romans 1 and Romans 2, and I didn't know how I was going to get out of Romans 1, because as you were here last week, you know, like you get bogged down in Romans 1. It's heavy. There's a lot to it. And so it's so cool to me that back in June, July, God gave me this, this sermon that I'm supposed to preach today, completely out of context, and it's, this is like part two to Kurt's part one. So if you missed last week, I'm going to review it briefly, but to come see it. Uh, I, but if you did come last week, this sermon, like last sermon was like heavy. And like, you kind of walked out feeling like, oh, it's kind of a bummer. Like this is, it's important. And it's also kind of a bummer. This one won't be as, as heavy, hopefully. So just know that that's coming. So uh, part of this, this sermon came out of the, a time that I had where God needed us or I needed to hear from the Lord. And there was a decision that I needed to make that I needed him to give me wisdom on, and I sort of was like, chill about it. Like, you know, you have this where you're like, okay, I'll do my devotions, and I did it, and at the end of your devotions, you're like, oh God, there's this thing that I need an answer for. No? All right, that's fine. Amen. It'll come when it comes. No big deal. And uh, that happened for weeks at a time, and finally, actually, Johanna, my wife, reminded me, this is a really important decision. You got to figure this out. Like, what are you doing? Take it seriously. So I was like, all right, I'll take it seriously, and the only way I know how. And so on my Sabbath, I fasted the entire day. Uh, And to the point of like the night before I was eating, I was like, this is my last meal. (sighs) I don't know how I'm going to make this work, but I'm going to fast an entire 24 hours. It's actually going to be more like 38-ish hours because of the dinner. And then you break the fast and breakfast after the fast and fast. So that's what I did. And uh, the entire day, and I don't know if you're like me, this is like just classic me, I guess, but uh, when, I, when I just like skip a meal because I was working or and I was too busy or I had a big breakfast and so I skip lunch, it's not a big deal to me to miss a meal, but when I'm fasting, something like changes in my brain and I'm like, oh, breakfast, I love, this is the potential for any breakfast in the entire world I could have had today, but I'm fasting so I get nothing. And then lunch comes and I'm like, lunch, I love lunch, lunch is the best, isn't it? What, and, and it's not that I like, was, had this plan for lunch that now I don't have, but it, it's the potential for lunch. This could be pizza. Like, come on. This could be amazing. This could be the best lunch of my life. We could go out. We could have this like, gourmet, multi-course lunch, and it would be incredible. But I can't because I'm fasting. And then dinner comes wrong, and it's the same thing. I'm like, I could have had pizza twice in one day. What's going on? Oh, and like, so I like feel this like weight of fasting, and I don't understand what it is except just my brain is weird, because uh, it, it could have been pizza, it could have been anything, and yet somehow I survived the fast. I know, against all odds. Thank you, thank you for that. By the way, I had a clicker and I gave it away. Well, that's <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. And so when I finished this fast, and I felt like God, God spoke to me, and I, I heard the answer that I needed, and I was feeling so good about myself. Like, I was like, I fasted an entire day. Yeah. How many Christians fast in 2018? None of them. Most of them don't fast. And so, that, like, I sort of had this, like, pride welling up in me, right? Like, this is, this is really great. I fasted an entire day, and God spoke to me in an amazing way. And, like, real talk, it was my Sabbath, and so I wasn't going to go out anyway. So, like, these potential meals I could have had were, like, top ramen and, like, chicken strips. <laughs> so, but, but I did it, and I accomplished it, and I felt so good about myself. I, I'm going to direct you when to do the next slide until I get a clicker. Uh, and so then I was reading the book of Acts, and the, in the book of Acts it says this. Uh, one day as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I've called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. And I was like, all oh, right. For them, it wasn't really a thing. They're just like, yeah, we were just worshiping and fasting. No big deal. And then like God spoke to them. And so they're like, oh, let's fast some more. We'll just do a little longer. That's cool. I was like, huh, maybe my like one day of potential pizza. It was not actually that big of a deal. And then I was reminded of all the other stories in the, in the Old Testament, in particular, where they fasted, like, like this one, in the book of Esther. Esther, I was going to say Esther's the man, but she's a woman, but she's like the best. She's the best. Uh, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and gather together all the Jews of Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then though it is against the law, I will go and sing to the king, if I must die, I must die. So she just told, told the entire assembly, the entire Jewish people, hey, three days, so, and, and I'm going to do the same. So she's already done three times what I did. And then you go to Daniel. The vision came to me. I, Daniel, had been mourning for three whole weeks. All that time I had eaten, no rich food, no meat or wine had crossed my lips, and I used no fragrant lotions until those three weeks had passed. No meat or wine for three weeks. So he's already like three weeks, that's 21 times what I did. And then when you heard me tell a fasting story, you immediately went to Jesus. Thank you. That's Sunday school answer. Someone's got to give it. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. Jesus ate nothing at that time and became very hungry. 40 days and 40 nights with no food. 40 times more than what I did. If, If this scripture was written about me, it'd be like, and then Kevin went 40 minutes without food and he was very hungry. So we ordered a pizza i got to incorporate pizza in my sermon somehow, right? Uh, so, when I, so when I compare myself to the early church, I don't look so good, do I? When I compare myself to the Jewish faith of old, this Jewish tradition that we come from, I'm not looking so hot. When I compare myself to the Christian church in the U.S. in 2018, I feel great, right? When I compare myself to me last year, man, I'm doing awesome. But when I compare here, I'm like, oh, that's nothing, I'm actually not doing that impressive of work. And it's not just fasting, right? Like if you look at my next slide. So uh, there's this thing that we do in the Christian world called spiritual disciplines. And I actually shouldn't have put this up because now you're gonna read it instead of listen, but that's okay. Um, So the idea of it is a discipline is just a thing you do to accomplish a goal, right? So like if you wanna run a 10K, you don't just wake up the morning of the race and go run. If you do that, you literally might die. Like, your heart experiences, they hook uh, 10K people, people who run a 10K up to an AKG machine, and your heart is doing the same thing as when it had a heart attack. Like, it's intense. So you have to prepare for that. You have to be disciplined. You do certain disciplines to accomplish that goal. And it has to be the right disciplines, right? You have to run a lot. You have to go endurance. Because if you try and, like, I'm going to run a 10K, so I'm going to lift a bunch of weights, okay you're getting in shapes. So you're kind of in the right sphere, but it's not actually the right discipline to accomplish what you want to do. Or if you're like, man, when they talked about serving on the worship team, I just want to learn how to sing. I would love to sing. That would be amazing. There are certain disciplines you do, ear training, like doing all the, brrr, all the like weird stuff that we singers do, actually is a discipline that helps us improve our singing. But if you learned music theory... It's a great discipline, and I think everyone needs to learn music, every musician needs to learn music theory, but it's not the right discipline to get you to the goal that you're trying to accomplish. So we've created these things called spiritual disciplines, and they're not, again, it's not like I'm going to try and earn God's favor. It's just a discipline. It's just, I want to accomplish a certain depth with the Lord, so I have to do these certain disciplines. And there's a couple great books. Uh, Dallas Willard wrote one. I think it's The Spirit of the Disciplines. Uh, uh, Richard Foster wrote The Celebration of Discipline. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, this is just a list of, I think this is D- Dallas Willard's, li- how he arranges it. And he puts them into two categories, the disciplines of abstinence, which are things you don't do, and disciplines of engagement, which are things that you do. And if you look at this list, so my uh, fasting is on the abstinence list. Uh, uh, it's a discipline to fast. Uh, just to give some definition a, l- a little bit, frugality is like being frugal, like don't spend, uh, I was going to say willy-nilly, is that still a thing people say? Anyway. Uh chastity, yeah, secrecy is like that idea of like when you pray, don't pray out publicly, pray in the private uh, parts of your house. And when you give, don't like tell everyone you give, don't like preach a sermon about how you fasted for a day. Like that's what secrecy is. <laughs> so that's two strikes for me. Uh, <laughs> and in then in the, in the engagement side, study is like Bible reading. And so we do that, right? Like, it's like soap. So does anyone else do soaps? I love soap. I mean, soap as a concept, yes, but also soap, the Bible study that we do. Uh, so for me, when I do, when I do Bible, st- or, uh, like soaps, so- sometimes, not all the time, I'm like racing through the scripture. I'm like, all right, the point of soap is to find a speed bump. So God, I don't have a lot of time. If you could just give me that speed bump real quick. I'm coming in hot, 70 miles an hour. Just hit me with that speed bump. All right, I right, got it. Good, next. Or uh, Worship. Worship is a discipline, and it's not just like a corporate thing. This is a personal worship thing. Uh, Celebration, service, prayer, fellowship, I think all of those kind of make sense. There's one that some of you here looked at, and you're like, I'm an introvert. So you're like, solitude, I got that one. And you turn to your extrovert, like loved one, and you're like, suck it, solitude, I got it. But here's the definition of solitude. The practice of spending time without any others or any distractions. Dang it, I was so close on that one. So, like, being by yourself and, like, reading a book, sorry, introverts, that's not solitude. Like, being home and, like, watching Netflix, just browsing Instagram, that's not the spiritual discipline of solitude. Solitude is like, my phone is in the other room, and once my, like, jitters wear off from my phone not being near me, I'm just, it's just me and the Lord, and I'm just being free from distractions. So these are the spiritual disciplines. And if we look on this list, we're like, it's pretty sad, my life, right? Like, would, is any of this, would I give myself an A for any of these? Nah. And the problem, the real problem, is that because I'm doing worship on Sunday morning, and it's like, worship is is great on Sunday morning, but for me personally, I don't have this personal expression of worship because I'm doing it on Sunday morning. So I'm doing this little thing, and it's preventing me from seeing this bigger thing. Because I'm, like, rushing through the soap and, like, give me that speed bump, Jesus, and, and, okay, got it good, I'm not spending, like, devoted time to study. Because I'm, like, fasting for a day, and I'm like, woo, I'm good. I'm not ever going to fast for 40 days. Because I did it, right? I checked that off the list, I did the discipline, and I'm done. And it reminds me of this story that Jesus told in uh, Luke. If you remember, uh, like, 35 years ago when we first started Empowered, uh, I'm just going to keep making that joke because it's funny to me. (laughs) Sorry, Kurt. (laughs) Again, I don't know why we make fun of you all the time, but here we are. Uh, In Luke 8, one day Jesus told a story in the form of a parable to a large crowd that gathered for many times to hear him. He said, A farmer went out to plant his seed. As he scattered it across his field, some seed fell on a footpath where it was stepped on and the birds ate it. Other seed fell among rocks and began to grow, but the plant soon wilted and died for lack of moisture. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up with it and choked out the tender plants. Still other seed fell on fertile soil. This seed grew and produced a crop that was a hundred times as much as had been planted. When he said this, he called out, Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. And his disciples did something that I'm so grateful that the disciples did. They said, what does that mean? I'm so glad he did this because if they hadn't, we'd probably be like, I got it. And we'd come up with some meaning of this that is so weird that we'd be like, nope, not even close. But because they did this, here's the meaning of the parable that Jesus says. The seed is God's word. The seeds that fell on the footpath represent those who hear the message only to have the devil come and take it away from their hearts and prevent them from believing and being saved. The seeds on the rocky soil represent those who hear the message and receive it with joy. But since they don't have deep roots, they believe for a while, then they fall away when they face temptation. The seeds that fell among the thorns represent those who hear the message, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. And so they never grow into maturity. And the seeds that fell on the good soil represents honest, good-hearted people who hear God's word, cling to it, and patiently produce a huge harvest." So I read this story, and I listen to the story from Jesus, and, I, and here's what my brain does with this. Tell me if you're, if you're similar. I go, oh, so we're talking about like outreach, and I'm the farmer in this story, and my job is just to spread God's word as wide as it can. And some people aren't going to receive it, the, it's the seed where the devil takes the, away and they don't get saved. Some people are going to receive it in and and that first part, and then others are going to, and then some people are going to produce a good fruit. And, and so my job is just, I don't, I'm not concerned with the results, I'm just supposed to cast the seed out. But what I wonder if Jesus would ask us today, are you sure that you're the good seed in this story? You assume you're the farmer in this story, but what if what if you're the seed? And when I look at my life and when I look at like how I fast and how I worship and how I read the Bible and how I do all of these spiritual disciplines, I go, I don't know that I'm the good seed. When I, in the story that he told earlier, he said, yeah, that seed produces a, a crop a hundred times what was planted. Does my life look spiritually a hundred times what was planted? I don't know that it does. In fact, so most of us in this room, I think, are not the first seed where the devil comes away and we prevents them from being saved, because I think mean, most of us have accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We're trying to like live, we're trying to uh, do this thing called Christianity, But I think a lot of us are seed that fell on rocky soil and we don't have deep roots. And so we're like trying to do this like Jesus following thing. And as soon as some temptation comes along, we're like, nah, and we we leave it. And then we'll come back a little bit because come on, it's Jesus. And then temptation comes, we're like, nah. And then I think a lot of us, particularly in the United States, I think this is our biggest struggle in the U.S. We're the seed that fell among the thorns. So we hear the message, we receive it with joy, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by cares and riches and pleasures of this life. So we're trying to grow deep in the Lord, but we can't because we care too much about other things. It makes me think. So we talk a lot about like, if Jesus were here today, what would he think? Uh, I, w- I went to, I was reading uh, in the New Testament uh, a story of Paul, where Paul went to Athens, and there's this cool story where he he comes in and he's like oh, you guys have an altar that you're worshiping an unknown God. Let me tell you about this God that you serve. And he tells them the message of Jesus. Super cool, like, kind of, he's incarnational. He, like, comes in and meets them where they're at and t- explains Jesus to them. I wonder if Paul were here today in 2018, if he came to the U.S., if he came to Bellevue, he walked into our church, if he would see us, if, would he say, oh, my brothers, I'm home, this is great, I can, I can relax here. I don't have to, like, be on or would he come in here and say, huh, let me tell you about this God you claim to serve. Let me tell you more about this. Apparently you think you're calling him Jesus, that's great. But the way you live your life, mm, I don't know if you actually know who he is and what he's done for you. So I wonder if uh, he would come in and I wonder if what God's trying to do in this sermon today and what, with us this morning and what he's trying, started with us last week We're in this this new series called Reset. What if God wants to reset our Christianity? What if uh, there's this life, and we all know this, right? There's this life that's so much deeper than the one I'm living. I know that that's true. It has to be true. What if the New Testament, when we read the stories in the New Testament, aren't just like fantastical stories? Like, wow, that's incredible. That's the high part of faith. What if that's just supposed to be the normal part of faith? What if our lives are supposed to look like that? How do we get there? How do we do that? So this, this morning, we're going to reset our Christianity. So we're going to have Josh Morris pray. Josh, thank you so much for praying. Pray for me, because I feel like this is a hard sermon that I need to get right, and I could very well make it go sideways. Uh, so pray for me, pray for us, and lift up another church.
1: Father, thank you that we're gathered here today as a body, as a church who loves you, who's going after your heart. Help our hearts, our minds, our spirits to hear your word, to hear your truth, to not only be encouraged, but challenged, to walk closer in you, to remain in you, that your spirit would fill us. Speak through Kevin. Holy Spirit, speak through him. Let his, his words be your words. Change our lives, our lives, Father. Father, I lift up a North Coast Fellowship in Seaside, Oregon. Anoint them, Father. Anoint them to reach that community, that hearts would be healed, that lives would be changed, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: News. The bad news is I'm just so me. Uh, the good news is I found my clicker. Bad news is in my pocket the whole time. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. It's just very, very me. Okay. So last week we were in Romans 1 and we, we, it was this like really heavy sermon where we we're resetting our theology and, and Paul lays out this idea of what sin is. And it's so important that we grab that and we get it right. And the end of Romans 1 looks like this. Oh, by the way, Romans is like my favorite book of the Bible. It was one of my favorites. And I know I say that every week about every book I preach and it's no longer funny to anyone else except me. But like Romans is not only one of my favorite books, but it's the best book. Like if somehow some weird circumstances came together and we lost all of the Bible digitally and physically except for Romans, like I think we'd be okay because Romans is that good. And so like when you're at the end of my sermon, when you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this, read the whole book of Romans because it's so good, all 16 chapters. Uh, so Romans 1 starts like this. This is the end of Romans. Romans 1 ends like this. Since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them to their foolish thinking and let them do things that should never be done. Their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They're backstabbers, haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. They invent new ways of sinning. And they disobey their parents. I love that that's in there. They refuse to understand, break their promises, are heartless and have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them too. So that's they, those people, right? Like we have to get our, It's important we get our theology right. And part of getting our theology right is like, they are doing things that God is not a fan of, and in fact says that his wrath is being poured out against them for these things. Cool. Yay, let's throw a party. It's fun. So here's where Romans 2 kicks off. You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, Why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? So it'd be easy, like as Christian churches, we get this reputation of like, we just point our finger at those people and be like, you're bad. And Romans 1 exists, so we can't just like ignore that. So that is a thing. But also, we, we have to pair that equally with we're just as bad, right? Like this list, where, okay, and this is what we do, right? Okay, greed, yeah, that sucks. Uh, hate, I don't hate people, so that's, that's worse than, than my thing. Envy, I don't do, except that car that, or that vehicle that Christina showed in the video, I, I want that. Uh, murder, I would never do murder. Quarreling, oh, got me. Deception, nah. Malicious behavior, yeah, maybe. Gossip, okay, yeah, they definitely do that. But that's not as bad as murder, right? And so we start to like pick apart this list and we find where I fit in. And I go, yeah, but that's not, that's not as bad as they. There's them out there. That's not nearly as bad, come on, right? Like there's like a hierarchy. And uh, what we do this and we're very Jew-like in our thinking when we do this because this is exactly what the early church thought. This book is called Romans because Paul wrote it to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome was made up of Jewish people who converted to Christianity, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And they didn't get along at all. And the Jewish Christians, to to the point where they're like creating separate churches because like we just can't figure this out because we're too holy for you, Gentiles. And the Gentiles are like, you're just so judgmental to us. I don't know what's wrong with you. We're just trying to get it right. This is Jesus guy. I thought he was was cool. And so the the Jews are like, yeah, they, they are bad people. And when Paul writes this, they're like, yes, you're right. God's wrath is being poured out on them for these things because they're bad. Isn't it great, though, that we're the people of God? Isn't it great that we're God's chosen ones? Isn't it awesome that, like, when we sin, it kind of doesn't count? a little bit, like, because God, you, we're his people. And so uh, we, we've created this hierarchy of sin, and we're saying, and the Jewish people were just like, yeah, we're God's, we're God's, so who cares? And uh, Paul's like, no, you're just as bad. I think Kurt said this last week, where he said, uh, where this last verse about his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin. He said, we relate uh, God not moving with God's apathy, his inaction with indifference. And that's not the case. He's being merciful to us. He's being kind to us. He's not giving us what we deserve, not because he's okay with what we're doing, but because he wants us to turn from our sin. See, it feels to me like if we're in Luke still and we're following the narrative that we have been in, here's where we'd be in Luke. Oops, right here. Uh, Luke 28, two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with Jesus. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross, and the criminals were also crucified, one on his right and one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. So we have Jesus on the cross, and he says this strange thing for someone being nailed to a cross. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And sure, he's talking about the soldiers, right, that are gambling for his clothes. Sure, he's talking to the Jewish leaders who had him crucified. Sure, he's talking to the Romans who went through this whole kind of mock trial and beat him and and sent him to the cross. Yes, he's talking to those people. But I think he's also talking to us, church, the people who are saying, we're God's people, we're cool. He's just going to forgive me. It doesn't matter what I do. Because I'm in in his presence, I'm in his grace. So it's all good. And Jesus is saying, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, this is from Passion of the Christ. This is Jesus on the cross. And what what God is saying in this image is that the things that you do and that I do and they do, to be clear, and them and those people out there deserve this. Like, it's not just a little bit of gossip. It's not just, oh, it's fine, it's it's just a little bit of envy. It's not like, my marriage isn't terrible, so porn's fine. No, all of, this is the reward for that. So we who condemn the they, the them, the out there, this is what we deserve, and this is the condemnation we're pouring on ourselves, because we are just as bad. None of us, you, me, anyone deserves a relationship with God. And like the, the uh, song, the Reckless Love song, I couldn't earn it, I don't deserve it. That's still true. It's not like we like, came into the church, we became Christians, and now we're worthy, we deserve it. No, this is what we deserve. And this is what he paid for us. And the worst part is, we don't even know what we're doing. Every single time. We don't even know that this is what we're doing. Over and over and over. What is, he, what is he calling us to do then? If this is true. There's this verse that we use, and Christians have used it so much, it's sort of like become a meme a little bit. It's Romans eight twenty eight. You know this verse. You may have never stepped foot in a church or know who Jesus is, and you probably still know this verse. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And it's so meme-y that I actually made it into a meme. You're welcome. I didn't say it was a good meme. This is, yeah. So we know God causes all, all, everything to work together and we use this verse all the time. Normal, normally with us, we don't use it with them and the they's. They have to get saved first. But for us, we go, see, God causes everything to work together for us, for the they, or for, not for the they, for the us. Because we love God. We're called according to his purpose for them. So God's just going to make everything work out, right? But I'm telling you, Read Romans. Read the entire book. It's so good. Sixteen chapters, and it creates this like narrative arc that leads. This is kind of like the midpoint. It's not actually the midpoint. It is kind of the midpoint of Romans, but it's it's the midpoint in his argument. And here's the con, Here's some of the context of Romans eight. Since we're his children, we're his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But we have to share his glory. We must also share his suffering. Does your life look like that? Are you sharing in his suffering? It's not like some internet troll said something mean on my Facebook. He's like in prison. Like Jesus was beaten. Yet we su- what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he'll reveal us to later. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us in, with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit's saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Do so you see the context? Everything works together for those who love God and are called to, and are according to his purpose in suffering. And... My life, a day of fasting is not suffering. Ten minutes of a devotion and then I'm out is not suffering. Like telling someone about Jesus and they're like, no thanks, I'm not really interested, is not suffering. The kind of life that God is calling us to live and the kind of gospel that Paul is, is presenting here in Romans is a gospel of suffering. It is, we want to be like Jesus, well guess what? That means we're on the cross, We're being beaten for no reason for our faith. That's what he's calling us to do. So I'm going to have uh, David and Shelby come up. While they're coming up, so there's this idea of grace, right? Like we all have heard a version of grace. So while they're coming up, what's just, what definition have you heard of grace? You've all heard, come on, you know. Unmerited favor. This is like Sam, of course. Unmerited favor. Yes, that's true. What what else have you heard? Maybe outside these walls. You guys don't like hear about grace outside these walls? There it is. Getting what you don't deserve. That's the, you are so good with the Sunday school answers. I appreciate you. Not Not getting what you do deserve. See, that's what we Christians like to do is we have like the getting what you don't deserve and then we like to flip it and say it's also getting what you don't deserve not getting what you do deserve yeah so those are all ideas of grace unmerited favor is a great definition of grace however when we talk about grace grace uh, we are westerners right yes that's there's not any question about that we are westerners and we think like westerners and westerners think in a very logical way right so if i say what is grace you're like ah he's looking for a definition Here's a line or two of a definition and that's totally fine we have a whole culture built on this kind of thing this is logical it is a b c d it follows we like linear progression and that's great however the bible is not in general western and the original audience of the bible were not westerners they're hebrews and hebrews are eastern in their thinking and uh, when you ask a hebrew what is grace they're like hmm grace is like a dance yeah, that's what grace is. It's the same way we're like, hey, uh, what's the kingdom of God like? And a, a Hebrew would say, hmm, see the kingdom of God is like a farmer who sows seed. That's Eastern thinking. It's, it's both and, it's not linear, it follows random order, it's poetic. And so we have, we've been sold this idea of grace and it's a good definition of grace, so I'm not crapping on your definition of grace, but it's incomplete because we are Westerners. And uh, so we think logically, but the, the New Testament isn't written in a logical, linear fashion. In fact, the idea of grace does not come from a um, spiritual wor- worldview, necessarily. It comes from a business worldview. And here's what grace was in the first century. So we have David here. Thank you, David. <laughs> <laughs> so David is doing business, doing life, li- living his dreams, living his truth in the first century, and he, <laughs> what do you think, they were all hunched over in the first century? <laughs> They're shorter, but not like dwarfs. What are you doing? <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> clearly, he offended somebody in the first century, and he now owes a great debt. I don't know, When we don't know how. Who knows? It doesn't matter. But the problem is, he's not rich. He doesn't have money. He can't pay off this debt. So he, what's he going to do? He's going to have to start selling stuff, and that's not enough. So he's going to have to sell himself. He's going to have to go to the person who he owes money and is like, I can't, I can't pay back this debt, so I guess I'm your slave now. I guess I have to do whatever you say. I mean, I have, I have a family too. You, if all of us are your slaves, does that pay the debt? Does that cover it? And so he's kind of screwed. Like, there's nothing he can do. He, he has no options. But then he becomes a client and Shelby comes along and she is a patron. And what a patron does is she has all sorts of money. She's wealthy. She's, and she's like, I got it. I will cover your debt. And <laughs> that's how David responds. You don't have to go into slavery. You don't have to sell your family. You don't have to leave your family. You don't have to do all of those things. I'm just paid in full. And they do, they now are entered into what's called the dance of grace and it is a dance. And the way that the dance of grace works, so by the way, this is grace. You know, like an Eastern person would say, what's the dance of grace, or what's grace? It's this. It's, it's the person who is given something that they don't deserve, and not given something they do deserve. But grace is also the, the patron here giving something freely. And both of these, these two people now are in, in a relationship where they have separate rules. Different rules apply to different So for Shelby, for the patron, her rule, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna dance the dance of grace, here's the rule. You give expecting nothing back. No matter what, you just, you give freely and you're like, I'm never gonna see a, any return for that investment. And it's okay, I'm not thinking about it, I'm not holding it over their head, I'm not looming over them, I'm not anything. You just, you, it actually, like, in some of the early, like, uh, first century, like, letters, they would, and they would remind people of the dance of grace, they'd say, just forget that you gave. Do your best to forget that you just, you just gave them money. Because they can't repay you anyway, so just forget about it. And if Shelby, as a patron, just decided, you know what, I am going to loom over a little bit. Maybe you do owe me. The dance is broken. It doesn't work. But Shelby's not like that, so then they can, they can continue to dance the grace, the dance the grace. Because she's a good patron. And so she is, she gave and she's expecting nothing back, no return, nothing. No expectation on David. David, as the client, has a very different set of rules he must follow. For him to be culturally relevant, for him to continue this dance, for him to still be in this, in this movement. Here's the rules that David has to follow. He has to receive, expecting to Always repay it. No matter what happens in his life, he's always gonna remember the gift that was given for him to dance. And in fact, so Shelby is pretending like nothing happened, just living her life. David's trying to like secretly find out what would bless her and do that. Secretly find out, like what are her needs? What is there anything I can do? Because I want to do that. Because as the client, for me to continue this dance. I can never forget that debt that was paid to me. Ever. And in fact, I don't have any money, so I couldn't repay the debt even if I wanted to. But what I can do is I can make Shelby's name famous. No matter every time we're uh, in, in a public situation, if I ever am given a public forum to speak, I'm I'm gonna make sure that everyone knows what she's done for me. I'm gonna let everyone know how great she is, how giving she is, how loving she has been to me and my family. And it's not going to repay the debt. I can never repay the the debt. But I can make her name famous. And that's my role in the dance. And see, I think a lot of you are, because you're smart, you're like, oh, I see where we're going with this. See, here's here's the God character, right? And he's given us something that we can never repay. And he gives freely, expecting nothing back. And he enters us into this dance and when we first come to know him, we're, we're like David here. We're like, yeah, this is awesome. Let's dance this dance. I'm going to make your name famous. I'm going to do anything. What would bless you? I'll do it. I'm in. And then we sort of get a little casual about it, don't we? Start to lose interest a little bit. All of a sudden, you're missing your cues a little bit. And eventually, you stop dancing altogether. And you've you've stopped the dance of grace. This is not grace. See, him making her name famous, that's grace. Her paying him something that he can never repay, that's grace. The two of them together in relationship dancing, that is what grace looks like. But this, grace has been broken. And here's God, right? He's given us everything. He's sent his son to die on a cross for our sins, even though we don't deserve it. And he's inviting us to dance, this dance of grace. He's like, I've done it, and here's us, like indifferent. Like, I guess I'll fast once one day, sure. I guess I'll spend a couple minutes in devotions, yeah. But I don't really want to go to that church thing, because, you know, I'm busy. I don't really want to give sacrificially, no. And, and God is inviting us to dance, this dance of grace. We're just... It's like we forgot how to dance. Thank you, guys. Give them a hand. See, this morning, God is reminding us. Yes, they, those are out there, and we need to get our theology right. It's really important that we know what we believe and why. It's really important we don't ignore parts of the Bible just because we don't like it. It It, it is. But this morning, God is saying, I want to dance with you. It's an invitation to dance. What does that look like? Well, we talked about it a minute ago, didn't we? We have these spiritual disciplines. And remember, he's given to us everything. He paid a great debt. We'll never repay it. We can't, even if we wanted to. It's impossible for us to repay We can make his name famous. We can live our lives every single day asking him, what do you want me to do? And then doing it. We can spend time studying his word as a discipline because we know it's going to bring us closer to him because we know it's going to bless his heart. And we're not going to earn it. We can't earn it. Nothing we do is going to earn it. But we can spend time in silence us and him and be open to have him speak see this version of Christianity that we've been doing isn't working but it's just limping us along enough that we don't realize that there's something more and this morning God is saying there's more will you dance with me so we're going to pray in just a minute and what I'd I'd like is I want to pray for all of us that he would reveal to us listen we're all Christians mostly in this room You know how to hear his voice. You know when he speaks to you, you do. So we're just gonna ask him to speak. And if he's gonna ask, he may ask you to do one of these disciplines and say, I want you to take it seriously. He may do none of that. He may say, I want you to join LSK. I want you to join the worship team. Or I want you to go and pray in silent for someone. Or I want you to take someone out to lunch. Or I want you to be bold and, and at work and talk about me. And it, I, I would, we're at a point now where we could say, but I could lose my job. But I could be embarrassed. But it's gonna cost me a lot and then I can't do with the other thing I want. But Netflix is right there. Netflix hasn't paid you any debt. Netflix is just asking for more. But God paid everything for you and for me. So Lord, we come before you and first, we want to repent for our lives and how we've made it and how casual we've made this relationship with you. Lord, you've invited us to be a part of this dance that is called grace, and we want to enter into your grace. There's nothing we could do to earn it. There's nothing we could do that deserves it even now. But God, you've called us to something deeper, to something more, to something greater, to a type of Christianity that would change the world, to a type of uh, relationship with you that would produce a fruit that was a hundred times what was planted. God, I don't want to be the seed that was gobbled up by the devil. I don't want to be the seed that was choked up by the thorns. Lord, I don't want to be the seed that falls away because of temptation. I want to be the good seed. And so right now, for everyone here, would you speak to them? Or would you tell us what you want us to do in this dance? God, we know we're not gonna earn it. We know we're not getting more saved. That's not a thing. We just are your children. We're your heirs. and We wanna be like you. We wanna, we wanna make your name famous. We wanna do what will please you. So would you speak about any of these disciplines or anything else? Be yours. And as God speaks to you, I want to encourage you. Pull out your phone. Put it on your calendar. Turn to the person next to you. Say, here's what God's asking me to do. Make it happen. And as you do that, go ahead and reach in front of you. Pull out the two cups. God, we lift up this first cup to you. It is the bread that represents your body. we talk a lot about we stick our fingers and we crush it. And it is beautiful. And the room is covered with that sound of us crushing your body. But we also recognize that we did that. I did that. In my casualness with you, I've done that. In my casualness with sin, I've done that. I've broken your body. I've done that. And so we lift this cup and we say thank you, and we acknowledge our sin, and we acknowledge that we don't want to live that way anymore, so take that cup now. We lift up that second cup, the beautiful cup that represents your blood. Oh, thank you for your blood. This is the cup that represents the thing that changed everything for us, God. This is the cup that represents when you became a patron to us in a mighty way this represents when you paid a debt that we could never repay and so we lift this cup to you in acknowledgement that we will never earn this we'll never deserve it even now and we're so grateful for what this represents that is your blood that has washed away my sin that continues to wash away my sin that continues to allow me access to you that allows me to be a new creation That allows me to be an heir with you. Thank you, Lord. Let's take this cup. The ushers.